Listen to this. I have a wife and two daughters. They can never find a hair tie and I can never stop finding them. That is the truth. <sighs> I've Bobby actually, pins would be the same. I just started, like I just, this is the most adult thing I've ever done. I just organised all my hair ties into one central location. So I have done this many times. But they work, still spread out. Yeah, that's the problem. Like it's still worth doing every now and then. Well, so but... what I've also done is like I've got every hair tie is like a different colour. So at the moment I've got a pink hair tie. So I know if I pick up a hair tie that isn't the pink one, then I've somewhere there is a pink one yes. somewhere. So I need to find that one. So I'm not allowed to start a new hair tie until my pink one is dead. Oh, until you've used it to death. It's exactly what I'm doing. Okay. So I've only got one hair tie in rotation ever. Okay. Yeah. I'm, I'm in support of this. Okay. Josephine. How are you? I'm great. How are you? Pretty well. I'm happy because it's really hot outside, but we're inside in aircon. Yeah, the aircon's good. In a darkened room with mood lighting. What an excellent invention all of those things are. Right? Rooms, air conditioning, lighting. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome everyone to My Favourite Musical. It's a podcast. Yes, and that's Ruth. And that's Josephine. We are your hosts today. Ruth, this is episode 33. Oh, this, that's my age. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Sorry. Correct. It just occurred to me. Uh, we're coming to you from my wedding anniversary. Yes. That's right. I've generously given up my wedding anniversary for this podcast. I did give you the option of changing your date. You're like, nah. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, You're like, Shane. we'll go out for dinner. It's fine. We will. We'll be yeah. fine. He doesn't even want to hang out that much. Oh. No, he does, but not like all day. <laughs> This is how you tell us on the podcast. He doesn't want to spend any time with me. He loves me. Yeah, he does. Um, so, Ruth, mm. we talk about musicals on this podcast. Yeah. But before we dig into our, our favourite musicals of the week, we have some other things that we talk about. We do. So, we usually start with an apology for any past uh, Just transgressions. Yeah. <laughs> uh, any mistakes that we've made. So, Ruth, tell us all your mistakes. Not even podcast oh, related. Just oh like, God. what do you have to apologise for? No, I have nothing to apologise for. I think that's not true. Oh. Have a think Again, are you um, Are you confronting me on the podcast About something I'm not aware of? No, you don't have anything to be sorry for That's good And nor do I Moving on to our next segment It's the spotlight Yes Do you want to go first? Sure So mine's kind of not speci- So normally we would do a spotlight on marginalised community That sort of thing Mine is not specific to that this week But I still think it's important to talk about And kind of semi-related this is your podcast (laughs) you can do do what you want whatever the fuck we want exactly so um the maaa um released new intimacy guidelines for stage and screen this week that is the media and entertainment arts alliance in australia yes well done um so yeah so the union for um our our union not just performers just anyone in the industry yeah Yeah. it's like a massive it's a huge organization um so I'm going to link to the new guidelines um, and this is uh, sort of why it was released. This is sort of their statement. So they say, over the past couple of years, we've seen a great awakening in our industry about the health and safety of performers both on stage and screen, but also in their other engagements with the industry. Hashtag Me Too was a watershed. It was the moment when the unspoken cultural of sexual harassment, bullying, the casting couch and all the other dirty secrets finally came into the open and women especially felt empowered to say enough is enough. MEAA collaborated with other industry bodies to develop a code of conduct governing sexual harassment, harassment and bullying 
uh, for stage and screen. These intimacy guidelines are the next logical step. We have worked with other industry organisations to draft what we now believe to be the most comprehensive guidelines for screen and stage in the world. Jeez. So I had to read through, there's lots of information like around consent, what isn't and isn't allowable, like in auditions, for example, yes. like what you can ask people to do in auditions yes. and what's definitely not allowed. Rehearsal processes, like using people's images in marketing um, and how that is done and, and much, much more. Wow. I also thought it was um, some great stuff. Like, so for example, in film rules, like all recordings of scenes, except the final cut involving nudity, semi-nudity, simula- or simulated sexual activity or sexual violence are destroyed. Wow. Yeah. Things like that. So it's almost like uh, ages and ages ago, I talked about intimacy choreography. Yeah. It's really just like, um, I suppose, solidifying that space. Yes, exactly. And really formalising it, yeah. which is really important. So I think it's really, like, as I said, I know it's we're not sort of specifically talking about a marginalised community, but these things also really touch those marginalised communities. So in your case, you spoke specifically about... Um, people uh, of colour. Yeah, of people of colour. Yeah. It was a black woman, wasn't it, who was this... Yeah, she was sort of the head of... Um, of that organization in America, but yeah. she was saying that um, black men are most likely to sort of be the victims yes. of in in America anyway of um, I suppose discrimination in that space yeah. in the space of intimacy on stage and screen. And I think obviously it's also a big thing with the trans community. Yes. Oh yeah, and, she mentioned that too. And yeah. even women in general, like yeah. the way that bodies are policed yeah. and, and treated in these spaces. So I still think it's important to That's talk amazing. About. That's really important. Yeah. So we'll I think that fits that. in perfectly with yeah, our exactly. spotlight. Nice. Um, mine today is a bit of an update about NIDA. Oh, yeah. So you'll remember I've spoken about allegations of serious systemic racism by what is the premier Australian theatre school. Yeah. Um, here's a little update on what they're doing because I keep checking back in on their website just to see, like, how they're addressing. Yeah. And what's been frustrating me, and I know I've said this, is that they never really, they've never really said, like, in in light of recent allegations or whatever, here are our steps. They're just sort of, like, randomly posting things like, oh, look at this that we've done. Yeah. I don't know why that just irks me, but it does. So they've recently appointed uh, Jacob Boma as their inaugural First Nations lecturer. So Boma is an artist of Naranga and Kuana Nations of South Australia who is going to be teaching First Nations knowledge and practice, um, engaging in subject design. He's going to be developing course materials and collaborating with students and team members to ensure that, like, courses um, are premised on culturally aware and culturally competent approaches and behaviours. So it's great that there's going to be sort of, like, I mean, obviously he's going to be teaching but also a consultant. Yes. Um, So I think that's really important and exciting. So watch that space there. But once again, like I'm not here to say that NIDA is doing a good job at all, but I think it's worth noting what they're doing. Because it's sort of like here's what they're doing but they're also not really owning up to what was done in the past, right? No, and all of these announcements are never prefaced with – you know, we understand we need to do better, yes. so this is what we're doing. So yeah. that frustrates me a little bit. Yeah, but, um, absolutely. Yeah. So that's just a little update from me. Very cool. And what is our Theatre Explained today? This week we are talking about the rostra or rostrum, hmm. whichever word you want to use. One's the plural, right? Yes. Rostra is the singular. Great. Yeah. <laughs> so, what is it, really? I mean, in short, 
fitness, it's an elevated riser, right? Like I, I always used to use the term riser. Yeah. That's, I don't know if that's, that's an Australian a, I thing. I think it's Australian and also particularly music based. Okay. Like you would put a drum on a riser, yes. for example. A, like drum, a drum riser. Set. Yeah. 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 Um, but I feel like rostra is a, just a more dramatic term. Yes. Right. Okay. Yeah. That makes sense. Yeah. It's just a, like a raised stage. Yeah. And like a portable generally platform. Right. Like, so in other words, it has sides that can be folded to be put away kind yeah. of thing right yeah. yeah and it can look like all sorts of things but it's it's generally just like a raised platform yeah that you could perform on and there's sort of standard sizes of 2.4 by 1.2 meters yes. often yeah. like that's sort of the most common thing and then a lot of productions were just like but multiple rostrum up yeah rostrum up together yeah. yeah and then depending on the height you want it yeah. The the height of the actual legs that you're putting on it, right? Yeah, precisely. Yeah. So, like, it, it reminded me of when we were doing Spelling Bee um, when we did our production that we were involved in because mm. that was basically what our stage was. Yeah, that's true. So, Actually, I think rostra is the plural. Oh. Oh, God. I didn't write it down. I just wrote the two words. Yes, um, yes. So, when we were doing Spelling Bee, uh, this, the space that we performed it in was kind of like um, – it's just an empty room, really. I don't know room, that I would really. call it a black box theater. It was just it's a room, not, yeah. basically. It's not even like a squared or rectangular yeah, room. kind of a funny-shaped room. They do have, like, stage lighting and everything set up in there, but essentially we had chosen the end of the room that, you know, where the stage would be and then just had to essentially pick the height of yeah. um, the rostra that we wanted. Yeah. Um, and in our case we wanted them as high as possible so that because a lot of stuff – because all the audience was seated just on one level on seats on the ground. Yeah, so we wanted to be really visible. Yeah, so that yeah. so that you could see, say, if like someone got on the ground of the stage and was doing something, yes. you wanted the audience to be able to see that right from the back row kind yeah. of thing. So it's such a good consideration because how many times have you ever been in an audience of like everyone's on the same level and you just miss you miss heaps. shit like that all yeah, the time? Exactly. It was like my number one, and I've seen it with shows in that space. Yeah. So it was my number one consideration. So smart when we did that. You are show. so wise. Thank you, darling. Well, this has been Theatre Explained. Award, do you have any recommendations for us this week? I do. It's a slight cop out because okay. we've recommended it before, but I was reminded this week about the incredible podcast, um, Every Musical Ever by Richard Carroll. Yeah. Like I know we mention it often, but I it's just great. I'm a, I actually am on a Patreon supporter of theirs oh, now. Oh, that's yeah. good. I mean, they're taking a break at the moment. Yeah. But, um, yeah. It's just really great and he gets some really impressive guests on to chat. Yeah. It's so, quite, actually quite amazing. Like Tim Rice has been on yeah. and, yeah, some really sort of amazing. Yeah. The guy who directed the Grease film, I think, like like big people. Yeah. I mean, I suppose that's easier in COVID, but yes. Yeah. But, I mean, great. That's awesome. Yeah, Take exactly. advantage. So, yeah, go listen to every musical ever. You can find it on Spotify or Apple Podcasts. Especially if or... you're an Australian musical theatre fan because obviously it's – and lots of – like because he has a different guest on every week on lots the main episode. Lots of Australian episode. stars, yeah. Um, it's – yeah, lots of Australian stars. Yeah. Yeah, which yeah. is great. No, it's awesome. Yeah. What's your recommendation? Um, So I was reminded of this video this week and I actually couldn't believe I haven't like re recommended this before on the podcast, but yeah. it's Jonathan Groff doing Anything Goes at Miss Cars. We have recommended no, it. Well, I think we've talked about it, but I haven't like linked to it before. I think we've talked about it like seven times. Okay. Well, I've never linked to it as a recommendation. Well then. So I'm going to do that this week. I went back and checked. Amazing. Um, 
and it was part of miscast. And as we've talked about before, he's like crazy obsessed with Sutton Foster. He yes. always has been since he was a kid. We, in fact, on our Instagram, we've posted that picture of him stage dooring her at yeah. Thoroughly Modern Millie um, and then her stage dooring him at um, Hamilton years later. Um, and, yeah, so he was set out like nine months in advance of the concert to get a choreographer well, to it, teach him. Because it's like him. a famously difficult yeah. number because you sing that song and then you do this incredible tap And he dance. did the exact choreography that she did in the Anything Goes revival. Yeah. And he's not a dancer either. No. Like he's like famously kind of not he a dancer. He does a very good job. He does such a good job. But he's like sweating profusely. It's so cute. I it's love it. Cute. So I'm looking to that. And then the other one, shout out to our friend Maddie J who recommended this um, podcast episode to me. So the podcast is called The Economist Asks. Mm-hmm. Um, so you know The Economist, yeah. big financial um, publication. And Sonia Friedman, the big um, Broadway and West End producer, was on there this week. Nice. And it's, um, it's really interesting. If you're interested in kind of the business side of – COVID and what it's doing to our industry. And mm. she talks like literal numbers, like here is the money that we have lost in wow. um, in ticket sales that we would have had in this period. Like here's what we're doing. This is why sh- they didn't qualify for any of the government grants in the UK. Jeez. Like it's like very sort of nuts and bolts. But if you are into that kind of business side yeah, that's of fascinating. theatre, it's really good. It's like about half an hour, I think, the episode. Mm. Um, but, yeah, really worth listening to. So I'm going to link to that as well. Nice one. Yeah. Oh, I like that. Thank you, Maddie J. Yes. Do you want to talk about a musical? Let's do it. Are you first? I am. Of course. (laughs) This week I'm going to talk to you about how to succeed in business without really trying. Oh, okay. That's a bit cute. What do you think? Well, I've seen it probably twice. Yeah, like amateur. Yeah, I have moderately enjoyed it both times. Yep. I know that I like a couple of songs. Yep. I know that I hate a couple of songs. Oh, interesting. I know that I Like you find, find them annoying? Yes, yep. annoying. I know that I find it to be just a generally sort of sexist premise. Yep. That's all I know. Okay, cool. So my first experience of this show, which is probably also yours... It's the one at our local theatre, right? around 2004, 2005. Yeah, that'd be right. Um, when our local theatre did it and several of our friends were in it. Yes. Um, in that production. Interestingly, that production holds the dubious record of, I believe, one of the worst attended shows in the history of our local community no, theatre. Really? Yeah. Why I think, attended? I think it was maybe like 28% or something attendance oh, that they had. And no. it's a real shame because it was actually a, gr- like a, was great, a great production. amateur production. It really was. I just remember it being like really cool and vibrant, yeah. great choreography. Yeah. Like, yeah. So it's a real shame. But I... I, I, I have since been told that fact a few oh, times no. about that production. That's yeah. sad. Yeah. Um, I then probably didn't think about it for a really long time, but saw it on Broadway in 2011 with Daniel Radcliffe as yeah. as the lead and it was wonderful. Yeah, nice. Like I, again, you know, I've been thinking about this a lot recently, but when you see a great production of a show that doesn't isn't necessarily even a great show. That great a show. Yeah. It like it's like, oh, this is what this show could be. Yes. You know? And we that, talk about that a lot. Yeah, like yeah. Exactly. Every show is just one great production away from being good. Yes. So I don't have a particularly emotional connection to this show at all. I don't think anyone could. But I do think that it is a funny, tongue-in-cheek show that has held up surprisingly well given its age. Nice. Um, so some background. So um music and lyrics by Frank Lesser and book by Abe Burroughs, Jack Weinstock, and Willie Gilbert. Nice. So Jack Weinstock and Willie Gilbert were a writing duo who mostly wrote 
comedy sketches and that sort of thing, like for TV. And this was by far their biggest sort of theatrical undertaking. Yeah. Interestingly, Weinstock was actually a doctor and that's how he and Gilbert met. Like Weinstock was Gilbert's physician. Imagine that, your doctor being like, oh, I'm sick of this. Yeah, well, I think he, I, you want to write I think musicals? Even he just did it on the side. Like, That's he wrote awesome. on the side. You know, my childhood GP also performed in amateur musicals. Oh, so really? I remember him always like we'd go, we'd get a checkup and he'd like give us a pamphlet for like noises off. And, like, That's awesome. And like, well, he was in something funny, like, oh, what was it? I think it was Edwin Drood. Actually. Oh, really? Yeah. Like, a, oh, like uh, in Brisbane? No, down here. Oh, I was really? Like a, I think it was at Wild. Oh, really? That's so funny. <laughs> Um, so we've, of course, discussed both Abe Burrows and Frank Lesser in the Guys and Dolls episode of That's this podcast. Right. Yes. So How to Succeed comes about 11 years after Guys and Dolls, um, but those two shows are by far their most popular shows. Yes. Um, so it is based on the 1920, sorry, 1952, not 20, <laughs> 1952 best-selling satirical book, which was called How to Succeed in Business Without Really Trying, The Dastard's Guide to Fame and Fortune. Oh, my God. Uh, it was by Shepard Mead and it was styled as a self-help instructional manual for the corporate world. <laughs> um, I also really enjoyed like reading the Wikipedia article you know, it's got like subject, like that's one of the things it has. And the subject of this book, it said was Machiavellian um, office politics. Amazing. Isn't that amazing? Like what a genre. Yeah. (laughs) So, um, the synopsis. So our lead character is Jay Pierpont Finch, a young window cleaner whose meteoric rise at the worldwide wicket company. We witness as he follows the advice of the book, how to succeed in business without really trying. (laughs) Uh, he meets Rosemary Pilkington, a young secretary at the, co- the company, and she immediately falls for Finch. But basically it takes him being blackmailed into kissing the president of the company, J.B. Bigley's mistress, whose name is Hedy LaRue, to realise that he feels the same way for Rosemary. It's like literally mid-kiss. So romantic. Mid-kiss with Hedy LaRue. He's like, that's when he sings Rosemary, right? Yeah. Um, so, I love it when men are kissing someone else and then they realise they like me. Oh, yes. I love that. So Finch rises all the way from the mailroom to vice president of advertising um, over the course of the show. But after a big idea he has backfires, he consults the book on one of the chapters, which is called How to Handle a Disaster. <laughs> and it suggests that your best bet, if you are the cause of the disaster, is to review the first chapter of the book, How to Apply for a Job. <laughs> Um, so Finch manages to talk his way out of the disaster to the chairman of the board who instead decides to retire and Finch replaces him as the chairman of the board. Very so rational. It's like, I, I could go so much more into the story, but it's literally just about him following the advice of this book and working his way up the corporate ladder. Like that's literally the story. It's a clever way to use what is actually like a serious self-help book yeah. in a funny way. Well, it's... Um, like it's clever. It, but it was always satirical, yeah. the book in real life. Yeah. Yeah, the only thing that they changed is, is the book is styled just like a self-help book but yes. they've added like a, a real person Who's which is kind of based it, yeah. on Shepard Mead like because yeah. so he wrote the book in his spare time from like working and advertising in New York kind of thing yeah. and then this was sort of his side project so they instead were like we're doing it about your life sort of thing yeah that's yeah. cool so, um, so some history. So Jack Weinstock and Willie Gilbert had originally adapted the book as a play, which was actually announced for production in 1957, but never happened. Hmm. Um, but then producers, Cy Fur, oh, you will have seen this um, producer's name, Cy Fur, I, yeah. think, I think you say. Yeah. It's Cypher. F-E-U-E-R-R. Yeah. I've read his auto, auto, uh, biography and it's excellent, yes. by the way. Um, and Ernest Martin got the rights. They instead decide to turn it into a musical comedy, like after they got bought the rights to the book. And Frank Lesser and Abe Burroughs are brought on board to turn what 
they had done as a play into a musical comedy, basically. Nice. So the show opens on Broadway on October 14th, 1961 at the 46th Street Theatre, now the Richard Rogers, which we also talked about last week for Chicago. Yeah. And closed on March 6th, 1965 after 1,417 performances. So That's like, great. It's a big hit. Yeah. yeah. It's nominated for eight Tonys and wins seven of them. Oh. Yeah. So best musical, best author. Who is it up against? Uh, I will tell you. Okay, sorry. It beat. Shut up. No, no, I'll tell you. Oh. It, be, it was at the 1962 Tonys. It beat Carnival. Yes. Milk and Honey. Yes. And No Strings. So none of which of those have really survived in popularity. Yes. But I will note that No Strings was the only show that Richard Rogers wrote both music and lyrics for after um, Oscar Hammerstein passed away. Yeah, right. Okay. Yeah. So that was a bit of a claim to him. And Milk and Honey, I think, is Jerry Herman. So yeah. like, there's people involved. Still big, yeah. Yeah, that are famous, but obviously none of those shows are done that much anymore. So yeah, so it won Best Musical, it won Best Author, which was a category that only lasted for 18 years and could be given to either a playwright or a musical book writer. Oh, cool. And has essentially been replaced by Best Book and because um, for play now it is just Best New Play. Yeah. Um, which goes to the author. Um, and uh, they won Best Leading Actor, Best Featured Actor, Best Producer and Best Conductor and Musical Director, neither best of which. Producer. Yeah, neither of which exists anymore because the producer wins best musical so yeah it's interesting isn't it lots of awards that don't exist anymore yeah that's so random the show also won the grammy for musical theater album and notably the pulitzer prize which was at the time only the fourth musical to do so yeah there have now been 10 musicals in total that have Mm -hmm. won that award um the film adaptation followed in 1967 which surprise surprise i have not seen but by all accounts everyone people do say it's a good adaptation of the show like dated but a good adaptation yeah Yeah. it's fine um a broadway revival opened at the original theater now renamed the richard rogers by this stage on march 23rd 1995 and closed on july 14th 1996 after 548 performances i actually didn't know that that had happened i think you will when i talk about it a bit more oh okay maybe that's actually the cast recording i listened yes i think it was when we were younger yeah Yeah. so um my understanding is that that production was well received but not a financial success. Yeah. Um, it was nominated for four Tonys and won just one for leading actor for Matthew Broderick. Oh, yeah, it definitely yeah. is. <laughs> yeah, I was like, I think this is the one you know. Yes, This would have been the one we listened to after seeing. Yeah, that would yeah. be right. Um, a revival of Showboat beat it for best revival. I don't know that revival very well, but. That's not the Mendes one, is it? Could be. Oh, no, Could not Mendes. Um, How Prince did the big Showboat revival then. Oh, with um, – Right after Kiss of the Spider Woman, I think. Okay, as in before. what's his name produced it, um, Live um, End, right, that you talked live about in Live that's time. right. It's the yeah. Live End one, yeah. Probably. It's about the right time, Yeah, that'd right? be right. It's yeah. the Live End, yeah. So the 2011 revival began previews at the Al Hirschfeld Theatre, which is where Moulin Rouge is now. Yes. On February 26, 2011. The production closed on May 20th, 2012, after 503 performances. So interestingly, it's less performances than the other revival, but did recoup its investment. Mm. So I just think in the meantime, they got a lot better at like maximizing income probably. Yeah, yeah. It was nominated for eight Tonys, but won just one for John Larroquette as featured actor. Hmm. Um, the Sutton Foster led Anything Goes Revival. That's how I was reminded of it. Um, one best, one revival. best Revival that yeah. year. Yeah. That's fair. So some fun facts. So let's talk about some cast in some of these productions because it's always yeah. had really great cast. Yeah, right? notable, right? So yeah. Robert Morse played Finch in the original production and it basically made him a star. Like it yes. was quite career. He also played it in the film. I think my mum has a crush on him that sounds about right <laughs> if you are a Mad Men fan he played Bertram Cooper on that show yeah um he's great 
It also starred Charles Nelson Riley as Bud Frump and Rudy Valley as JB Bigley. Oh, nice. Yeah, so like those are like proper famous um, people for the time. The 1995 revival starred Matthew Broderick as Finch and Megan Mullally as Rosemary. Nice. With John Stamos and Sarah Jessica Parker replacing them during the run. And this was before Matthew Broderick and Sarah Jessica Parker were married. So I think they were together, but it was before they were married. John I also Stamos. don't think she's a Rosemary. No. Oh, she's like, definitely she's not. A, she'd be a great Smitty. She would. Which is like Rosemary's like, like funny, sassy zany, yeah. character best friend. Yeah, she's not a Rosemary. Friend. Yeah. I found that a little strange. The 2011 revival, of course, starred Daniel Radcliffe as Finch, as I mentioned, and he was later replaced by Darren Chris from Glee and then, oh, nice. and then Nick Jonas of the Jonas Brothers. Okay, interesting. Yeah. Um, there's even on Spotify a little like five or six song sampler of Nick Jonas and? doing the songs. Yeah. Is it good? It's fine. He, he, I think he's much better in this than he was in the Les Mis concert. That's not hard. No. But I'm just saying. Okay. <laughs> so John Larroquette was Bigley and later replaced by Bo Bridges. Ooh, I like Bo Bridges. Yeah. And also of note was Tammy Blanchard as Hetty LaRue, who oh, we discussed nice. in the Little Shop episode. Yes. I will say. Like, and uh, Gypsy? Yes. Yeah. In the um, Bernadette Peters Gypsy. Yes, not, right. not the Patty LaPone Gypsy. Yeah. yeah. I will say like listening to that cast recording quite a bit this week that her characterizations as Hetty are very similar to how she plays Audrey. Like the accent mm. is Exactly. I'm not saying it's not right for both characters, but the characterization is incredibly similar. Interesting. (laughs) Yeah. So anyway, Mm. Um, the voice of the book. So like there's uh, the narrator of the show is basically the voice of this self-help book, right? Yes. So in the 1995 revival, it was Walter Cronkite. Awesome. And in the 2011 revival, it was CNN anchor Anderson Cooper. Oh, nice. Yeah, isn't that cool? I actually didn't know that it was Anderson Cooper. That's cool. You can hear it as soon as you listen to it now. Yeah, well, I suppose once you know. Yeah. Yeah. So I didn't know until researching this show, but Frank Lesser, the composer, started the theatrical licensing company Music Theatre International. I think I M- found that out when I did Guys Did and you? Dolls. Yeah. So yeah. MTI is like basically the biggest theatrical licensing company in the world. Cameron McIntosh now it's owns huge, it. huge, yeah. But like they – so we used to – like if you were doing a show here in Australia to get the amateur rights, the biggest company was called Hal Leonard and Musical Theatre International took them over some years ago now. Yeah. So even in Australia you've got this MTI, MTI Europe, there's MTI Australia. America, yeah. like there's all these different ones. Yeah. Um, Abe Burroughs, the um, co-book writer, his son James Burroughs, is an incredibly successful television director and has directed over 50 pilots um, for TV. He co-created Cheers and directed the majority of the episodes of that show. He also directed every single episode of Will and Grace and many episodes of Friends, Frasier, Laverne and Shirley, Two and a Half Men, Big Bang Theory, many, many more. Like. Every famous TV show you can think of he's directed for. I can for. see, like, his name in all yes. those credits. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Um, so I'm not sure if you came upon this when researching Guys and Dolls, but it was due to it, – it was due to win the Pulitzer. But it Guys didn't. Guys and Dolls? Yes. So they didn't give one out that year. Huh. No, I didn't but know they, this. Apparently it was um, – bookmarked to receive it but because a burrows was being investigated but for the house oh. of american activities they yes. wouldn't gi- they just decided they wouldn't give it to them i do remember this yeah and so instead they just didn't give one that year that fucking isn't, isn't that insane such bullshit yeah so this is obviously like investigation of communism, communism or communist sympathizers yeah, yeah in the um 50s right yeah, yeah. in the 50s yeah. um 
I read a very charming piece in the New York Times from 1962. This I got a New York Times subscription at the beginning of COVID, partly to help with when we we're doing the podcast. It's so handy, yeah, and, and not for expensive. I might add, like considering you know you pay like one dollar a week. Or it's one dollar a week. Yeah. Okay, it's so good, and um, it means you get access to the entire history of the New York Times. And so when we're in re- researching a show, I will just put it in this as a search mm. term and sort of see what comes up. And I love it with old shows like this because you get these clippings. So some of them have been um, transcribed into sort of digital articles, but some oh, of them you, just say, you could only view on yeah time machine yeah, they nice. call it. Yeah. And so you're viewing like a an image of the paper the the paper page. Yeah. And so in this case, um, and I read quite a few of these this week because it was a lot of the 60s. So this was a piece from 1962 when seven U.S. astronauts were in New York City and wanted to see the show. <laughs> um, at the time, astronauts were basically major celebrities because the first orbital space flight had just taken place. So this was big news that these astronauts were in town and the show was completely sold out. So they instead had to call around to all the people who'd bought house seats, like the producer's house seats and, and get them. So it was like guests of the composers, guests of the producers and get them to switch to another performance, which they managed to do so and get the astronauts in instead. And it also stated in the article that the tickets cost $9.60 each, the, the house seats, and they were paid for by life magazine oh my god <laughs> isn't that great um do you remember how popular prepaid phone cards used to be yes i do so the 1995 revival was the first broadway show to have a prepaid telephone card what yeah and so, so like it like the theme of the card was how to succeed in yes because nice. you remember they were they were like themed like Companies yeah, you could get would like, have them. like a Disney one. Yes, or, yeah, that'd be exactly. Like a, yeah. So, um, yes, it was loaded up with your with your telephone credit, yeah. and it was a how to succeed one, and of course, it included the number for the the ticket line. That to, is to so book tickets. cool. Yeah. Um, I thought I'd given up an idea of how Broadway budgets have changed over the years because we've had these three major productions since it opened. And, of course, I will say also have continued to grow in the 10 years since the 2011 revival. Like that's a long time ago well, in yeah, terms of budget. Yeah. So the original Broadway production had a budget of $310,000. The 1995 revival had a budget of $5.5 million. <laughs> and the 2011 revival was $9 million, which I actually think Quite, quite cheap low, in comparison, yeah. yeah. So I would say an equivalent production today would be at least $12 million, Oh, shit. Like for a similar sort of revival. Jesus. Like it is insane, yeah. Um, there was a board game made in 1963 by Milton Bradley hmm. that was based on the book and the musical. Yeah. It is set in the office and hinges on secretary jokes, gender-related anxieties and workplace stereotypes. It includes shenanigans cards, oh which God. are only limited to female players, while secretary cards can only be held by men. I don't know why. Cards show young secretaries try to suck up to their bosses while older secretaries bear the legend. She can type and the wife likes her. So I, I think it's all meant to be taken not seriously. I hate but everything about what you just It doesn't just make said. any of it less sexist bullshit. Like, That's tr- I think they're sort of trying to um, – satirize it but in doing so just make it so much worse oh my god anyway that's a thing um this is actually a not so fun fact but the 100th performance of the 2011 revival was cancelled after a 29 year old stagehand overdosed um backstage and suffered a cardiac arrest Mm. shortly before the show was due to start um it it, the only reason i mentioned it reminded me that a month or so ago a stagehand was killed 
um, loading out the Beetlejuice set. Oh, yeah. Yeah, like it was sort of all over, like it fell off a ladder or something. Like that God. was like a workplace issue. This yeah. was this was a personal um, wow, thing. Wow, just like, overdose. Work, yeah. But, yeah, they, um, the other reason I mentioned is it's, before COVID, it was massive for people to cancel a performance. Yeah. Like, like it just never happened kind of thing. So, well, but yeah, yeah, they basically came out, John Larroquette and, and um, I went to call him Harry Potter then, that's terrible. Daniel Radcliffe, Radcliffe yeah. came out and said, like, um, we just wouldn't be able to give you a proper show tonight. It's yeah. too, it's too hard kind of thing. Yeah. Wow, so that's intense. staggering. Um, so a couple of talking points. So Daniel Radcliffe, I just have to say, was robbed of a Tony, not just a Tony win for this performance, but he didn't even fucking get a nomination. Yeah. And I remember you just talking this up so much. One of the biggest travesties, travesties, travesties yeah. that I have ever seen in a performance that I have seen, like it remains one of my performances I've ever seen on stage. One of the best ones. Yes. Wow. Like it is just, he was just so charismatic. Yeah. So like He's everything. very talented. Very talented. Yeah. And working his fucking ass off You would there. in a role like that. Yeah. That's like, not an easy and role. And I'm not like a massive Harry Potter nerd or anything like that. Like that it doesn't Why come from you? that place. I love Harry Potter, but you know, there's, there's definitely levels of nerdery and yes. I'm not up there on it. I am. Are you? Yes. I don't see you like wearing head to toe. Oh, you do have a Gryffindor. I have jumper. I've got a Gryffindor Sorry. jumper. I've got a, I've got a wand. I've got the. I've got a signed photo from Daniel Radcliffe. I've got yeah. Well, I wasn't going to mention this, but my playbill is signed by both Daniel Radcliffe and John Larroquette. Nice. Yeah, we that's like cool. stage doored at the end of the show, like yeah, that's little awesome. little noobs. Um, but yeah, like I just, I have to mention because he is so good and yeah. he was so good in this show and I know awards aren't everything, but it just felt like the industry was like, cast Daniel Radcliffe in the show. Why don't you? And like, just, he can't help it that he's famous and talented. Yeah. Right. It's not, it's, he's not Nick Jonas. And it's not even like that was the first Broadway show he did. Like he'd been yes. in fucking Equus before yeah. that, you know, like yeah. it's. He, I think a lot of people still think he's a lightweight, but yeah. like if you look at his filmography or his like, or his theatre yep. um, bio, yep. Harry Potter is like the lightest thing he's done. Yep. You know what I mean? Exactly. Ugh. Exactly. Um, rewatching clips of the various revivals this week. I really hope that whenever it is done again, that we do get some diversity happening in mm. the cast. It, like looking at these videos, it is as so white, white as far as the eye can see. Yeah. The notable exception exception was Lilius White as Miss Jones in the 1995 oh, she revival. Would have been so good. Yeah. So she has the solo in Brotherhood of Man at the I end. I love her so um, much. And they basically turned it into a gospel number, which, like, I have to say, is very impressive. But it does feel fairly tokenistic to yeah. just trot out the one black actress to bring the house down like that. Random black girl. Exactly. Yeah. And so I, yeah, it's kind of like. It, yeah, like let's instead have a black rosemary. Let's instead, you know, like it doesn't have Absolutely. to be. Yeah. So I just, it really stood out to me this week watching these videos. Yeah. Um, and we sort of discussed this with Promises Promises the other week, but this obviously suffers similarly from the misogyny of the time, mm. even whilst trying to satirise it at different points. It just doesn't feel like they hit it with yeah. the satire. Well, well, they don't. then they did, no. but now no way. Yeah. You know, we're, we're coming up to, you know, 55 yeah. years or whatever since yeah. it was on. Like yeah. it's a long time. So there's songs like happy to keep his dinner warm and there's such a, a shit song too. yeah and there's a song called cinderella darling in which the secretaries are jealous that rosemary actually gets to marry her executive boss like she's a secretary and oh you know like there so 
you really, I think, if you were doing it now, would have to make some select cuts and be very self-aware whilst producing it yeah. if you're doing it now. But I do think that that's possible within the realm of the show. I do think yeah. that the, the the sort of the bones of the show would allow you to do that. Oh, well, that's promising. Yeah. Good. Um, so um, the um, uh, cast recordings I'm going to link to, so the original Broadway cast is on Spotify. The 1995 Broadway revival is not, but it is on YouTube. Mm. So I'm going to link to that. And the 2011 Broadway revival is on Spotify. And then some gateway songs. So I've gone for um, Brotherhood of Man, which I mentioned yeah. is like the 11 o'clock number. It's a great song. It's an awesome song. Um, in each of these cases, I've used the 2011 revival. Yeah, of course, yeah. Um, it's a great song. Definitely watch them doing it at the Tonys as well. Yeah. It's, it's a so great good. performance. Yeah. Um, the next song is Coffee Break, which is just kind of a <laughs> That's fun. That's my favourite. Yeah, kind of a fun um It's like a whole ensemble, ensemble character piece. Yes, though, like, exactly. And yeah. you, you really they really get to have fun in that song yeah. and it gets in my head. There's always really good Corey in that number. Yeah. And then the last one I've done is I Believe in You, hmm. which is like uh, – it's actually him singing to himself and then all yeah. of the sort of male executives singing to themselves. It's like a cute – it's a lovely melody, that one. Yeah, and then, like, there's a reprise, which is a love song kind mm. of thing where they sing it to each other. But, yeah, those are the those are the three that I've chosen. And that is how to succeed. Oh, well, thank you, Ruth. No worries. Are you freezing over there? I'm okay. Are you cold? I'm freezing. Okay. I'm going to turn the aircon off. Keep talking. My feet are like – Starting you get to, a lot colder than I do. I do. I'm a cold, cold person. Yeah. All right. Do you want to hear about my musical this I week? I sure do. It's Blood Brothers. Yay. <laughs> you like Blood Brothers? Yeah. I um I saw it. I was telling someone earlier today. I saw it when I was 20 yeah. on the West End. Yeah. And I had no money that trip. My dad was supposed to come with me and he ended up not being able to come at the last minute but mm. I'd already booked these theater shows yeah and there was a whole thing where it was a big mix-up and I didn't end up having any money so for like three days I was in London with no money but these theater shows booked each night oh my god and so I would just kind of wander around the city and then just Not have enough dinner or doing anything yeah like just have enough money to eat like to have dinner and then see the show that night that if if I had to characterize you and say like what would you value it would be shows over yeah, practicality anything. like that yeah. that's just Ruth to yeah, me exactly yeah. and but what I mostly remember was it was like a Monday night yeah and yet at the end of the show everyone was sobbing the yeah. cast was sobbing on stage I was sobbing in the audience yeah. like it was just an incredibly emotional show well that's exactly what I'm about to tell Excellent. you. So I actually I don't know how the musical came into my world. Yeah. I um I think I've always been aware of it though, because of course I'm a musical theater nerd, but I I just remember that I like I kind of liked some of the songs when I was younger, but it wasn't really until I fully understood the book and I read the script that I fell in love with it. Yeah. I've never seen a production of this show. Oh, okay. I've seen lots of bootlegs of it, like recordings yeah. of it, and I've read the script, so I know the impact of this show. Yeah. Um, it's a ripper of a story and it's told really well, I think. I think it's also a musical that doesn't fit into usual musical structure or it's like it's not traditionally composed. So it does subvert expectations somewhat. I, I actually think. kind of love that about it. I love that about yeah. it. So it's one of my favourite things about the show because yeah. it's just not a typical musical. No. Not just because of the subject matter but also just the way it's written. Okay, so some background. This is a father-son Holy Ghost musical by Willie Russell. Yes. Yeah, it's a story of superstition and it addresses the issue of nature versus nurture. It's also called a standing ovation musical because, as Ruth said, it always gets a standing yeah. ovation. Like 
it has such a huge emotional impact on its audiences that it's literally called the Standing Ovation Musical. Wow. Because I, didn't it, like, know, I didn't know that about it. That's without, amazing. Like without fail, apparently, this show will – everyone it, will be crying and everyone will be on their feet. It's such at the an emotional end ending. Yeah. 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 So I really like that about the show. Yes. Yeah. Fuck yeah. Get him up. His uh, plot. So it's set in the 1960s and a narrator tells us the story um, that this – well, tells us that this story is about twins who are born and die on the same day. We're then introduced to this poor single mother. Her name is Mrs. Johnston, who has seven children she can barely feed. Uh, she works as a cleaner for a wealthy couple. Um, the mother in that couple is, well, the woman is named Mrs. Lyons. And Mrs. Johnston then discovers that before her husband walked out on her, he got her pregnant with twins. She calculates that she can only afford to feed one of her twins. I will say that this is like... A bit preposterous. A bit preposterous. So, like, yeah, she's got seven kids, so she can just squeeze an eighth in there, yeah, but, but nine definitely is Definitely not nine. Definitely yeah. not nine. Um, so she confides this problem to Mrs. Lyons, who basically then, like, blackmails her into giving up one of her children. Yeah. Mrs. Lyons is desperate for a kid because she can't conceive. So the twins are born. Their names are Edward and Michael, and they're separated at birth. Like, Mrs. Johnson's, like, she sort of regrets it straight away, but Mrs. Lyons is, like, takes Too a kid. Late. Yeah, <laughs> literally takes one of the kids so Mrs. Lyon Mrs. Lyons takes Edward and then um fires Mrs. Johnston like so that she isn't so close to her son so yeah. like I think as she sees that Mrs. Johnston's like attached to the baby she just gave birth to Mrs. Lyons is like all right bye <laughs> so then she literally threatens that if twins separated at birth learn that they were once one of a pair they will both immediately die yeah, <laughs> yeah look once you start to examine the plot of this show. When you say it like that, it sounds ridiculous. Yeah. But when you're in the heat of the moment, That's right. even reading the script, it all seems very plausible. Well, and like... Also, let's remember that some people are incredibly superstitious. Well, that's and, it. And it is and painted as a superstition kind of, right? It, it totally is. And I'm probably I'm probably talking about it in a way that is not really doing it any favours, but it's it's definitely like set up like a Greek tragedy. Yeah. So these things are not outside of the realm of possibility within that genre. We like, know you've that got it's the narrator, yeah. you know what's gonna happen, you know that these are superstitious housewives in the nineteen sixties. Yeah. Like it's it's completely plausible. So anyway, after that superstition that if they find out their brothers, they'll instantly die. The twins happen to meet by chance when they're seven and discover that they, that they have the same birthday. So they decide that they're blood brothers. The women try to keep them apart. Like Mrs. Johnston's terrified about them dying, um, but they somehow keep just running into each other and being in each other's lives. Yeah. So as they grow up, they both fall in love with the same girl. Mickey is very clearly working class and he's on the wrong side of the law, like regularly. Yeah. While Edward or Eddie is quite privileged. Like he goes to uni and all sorts of things. Um, blah, 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 things get pretty bad because, like, Mickey robs, I think it's like a bank or something. He kind of gets caught up with the wrong crowd, just, It's like his he? older it's brother. His brother. It's his right, older it's brother, his brother, Sammy. And so he goes to jail for a while and, like, he'd married the, the childhood sweetheart, Linda, but then while he was in jail, like, Linda and Edward meet up and they don't ever have an affair but there is this misunderstanding and Mickey believes that Edward and his wife Linda are having an affair. Right. Which is not correct. Even though Edward does have a bit of a crush on Linda, but whatever. Mickey confronts Edward with a gun and Mrs. Johnston, to calm them all down, tells them the truth that they're brothers. I yeah. don't know why she thought yeah. that would calm them down. <laughs> so, And it doesn't. Especially with a gun in someone's hand. That's right. Mickey is, of course, distraught. I think mainly because he's like, why wasn't it me? This guy's got everything. I've yeah. got nothing. Um, and he accidentally shoots and kills Eddie. Yeah. The police then shoot and kill Mickey 
meaning that Mrs. Lyons' superstition came true and then Mrs. Johnston's is standing over the bodies of her dead sons, sad. And sings. Sings the best song of the show. The best song, song of the in the show, show. yeah. yeah. <laughs> That's the plot. Yeah. It's pretty bonkers. Have you seen that documentary, Three Identical Strangers? Yeah. A, it's an excellent documentary if anyone's Very looking good. for a good documentary. Um, and it is the true story of these triplets yeah. who were separated at birth. But they were purposefully separated. It, purposefully. Wasn't like, it wasn't like any knee. They were purposefully no. separated to carry out a nature versus nurture experiment. And, again, specifically based on, like, Twins. social status, wasn't yeah. it? Specifically. Yeah. So they had, like, there was a really, I think there was, like, a Jewish couple there was like a really wealthy sort of suburban white it was, couple. Yeah, it was like working was class, like middle class, class, upper class kind of, yeah. Like it was just staggering. Yeah, like the moral, existed. the ethics involved yeah. are just non-existent. Non-existent. But, yeah, great documentary. It just reminded really me. Yeah. Okay, so some production. So Willie Russell is an English dramatist who began his career as a singer-songwriter in like the folk pub scene. Yeah. Um, he was also part of the Liverpool Everyman, which at the time, we're talking around the 60s, 70s, was a pretty progressive collaborative like theatre collective. I, the more I find out about theatre in the UK in oh, the last so rich. 50 years, and yeah. like I know that a lot of the funding is being taken away now and it's terrible, but you, you hear like interviews with Ian McKellen and yeah. some of these actors and you would be able to build a career in a regional theatre yes. as a professional performer. Yes. Incredible. That's how rich the theatre, yep. like theatre is there. Yeah. It's just so, yeah. yeah. Well, this like, he literally, yeah, you can turn the aircon back on if you want. It is warm again. <laughs> so he literally joined this theatre, the Liverpool Everyman, and he sort of credits that with with everything yeah. like they're the ones who nurtured him and they're the ones who put on his shows and um anyway he sort of so this is Willie Russell sort of gradually fell into musical theater by creating like just a whole bunch of theater and it's sort of organically needing music yeah interesting um so like adding underscoring or just like here's one song that I think a character should sing. Yeah. So he credits that to working a lot with the plays of Bertolt Brecht and Kurt Weill, mm. which are not traditional musicals in the sense of like formula, but I, I do include music when the like when the need arises. Yes. So he never really approached writing a musical directly. He never really intended that. Um, so he'd written Educating Reader and quite a few other works. That's right, which is an incredibly famous play on an its own. An incredibly famous yeah. play, yeah. And so, like, some of his other plays had just included, say, a song that a character yeah. would sing or other music, and so he'd written that too. He says that the idea for the plot of Blood Brothers just came to him, like, bang, mm. I've got the idea. So he developed this portmanteau version of the show that ran for 70 minutes and was presented to high school students in 1981. Yeah. And that that was the whole intention of the musical. Like, that was all it was ever going to be. Yeah. He was just going to write this show for 70 minutes for high school students. And so he said that he literally wanted the show to just be accessible to them yeah and that was the entire intention after that though he decided to write a full score and an extended book and so in 1983 it was presented at the Liverpool Playhouse and that production starred Barbara Dixon as Mrs Johnston it was not really much of a success um, but it did happen to transfer to the West End in April in 1983 yeah, right. at the Lyric Theatre yeah and that ran un until October 1983, so a couple of months. It won the Olivier for Best New Musical and Barbara Dixon won for Best Leading Actress. Mm. So it was pretty successful. Um, there was then a 1984 UK tour and then it sort of feels like this show sort of inexplicably inexplicably becomes this is hugely popular thing. Yeah, like it's it quite just amazing takes that off. it happens after all that. Yeah, it's quite like 
considering it started in 1981 and it had been like in production this whole time and it's not really until after the original production that it even becomes popular. So people just keep showing up to see Blood Brothers. There was then, actually this is really when it took off, there was a West End revival that opened in 1988. So this revival closed in 2012. Yeah playing 10,013 performances, coming in as the fifth longest-running West End show ever yep. after The Mousetrap, Les Mis, Phantom and Woman in Black. Yeah. So it's the third longest-running musical on the West End. Yeah, so I threw it in 2007. Yeah. yeah. So that production had been running since 1988. Yeah, it's insane. Crazy. Um it's also the longest-running West End revival ever. Okay, yeah. So that sense. revival has starred pretty much everyone. Um, as Mrs Johnston, among many others, there was Stephanie Lawrence, Marty Webb, Kiki D, Helen Reddy, Carol King, Petula Clark and Mel C from the Spice Girls. That's right. Like it's quite common for it to be kind of a, f- a singer, not yes. an actress as such, right? Yes, that's right. Yeah. She, I mean, she is the main character. Yeah. And yeah. But they want that kind of folky sound that yeah. not musical theatre people generally don't necessarily have. That's right. Yeah. And generally too they do they do stick to like British actress, particularly if they're from like Liverpool, well, Lancashire. The accent like, is so specific. It's a bit like Billy Elliot and yes. it's like it's a tough accent. Yeah. It's a really tough accent. Yeah. So um Anyway, so Con O'Neill, who played Mickey, won the Olivier for Best Actor in 1988 for that revival. There was also a notable Australian production in 1988 starring Chrissy Amphlett, Russell Crowe and Peter Cousins. Yeah, incredible. Which really launched, like for Peter Cousins and Russell Crowe, that was sort of the beginning for them. Yeah. Um, That was at the Seymour Centre and that ran for four months. It was pretty successful and Russell Crowe now credits that production with the start of his career because before that he was sort of busking on the streets of Sydney. That's amazing. Yeah. Um, There's also a notable Hayes Theatre production in 2015. So I saw that as well. Yeah. Yeah. Blood Brothers opened on Broadway in 1993 at the Music Box Theatre and it closed in 95 after 840 performances. Okay. So a very solid run. Stephanie Lawrence reprised her role as Mrs Johnston um, and that production was nominated for six Tony Awards at the 1993 Tonys, including Best Musical and Best Book, but it didn't win anything. Okay. That year was the Kiss of the Spider Woman year. Oh, interesting. Which really sort of cleaned up at that Tony Awards. Um, so a couple of talking points or well, fun facts. Willie Russell was originally a hairdresser. He even, <laughs> like not a barber or like a woman's yeah. hairdresser, he even ran his own salon before he pursued a career in the arts. Yeah. Yeah, just random. Um, he's also just a really interesting articulate man. Yeah. So he talks about the process of developing the show and interestingly when they began rehearsals for the original production in Liverpool, he brought the band in like straight away at the very beginning of the rehearsals and like when any underscoring was needed, he would just like they would collaborate and improvise and work on it yeah. there in the rehearsal room. So he's like he's so fascinating to listen to because he's just not precious about anything yes and so he's all about like let's collaborate let's adapt let's change things if they need changing so there's actually quite a few different versions of blood brothers out there um the show's also quite a small cast there's only 11 characters um and willie russell again talks often just about how opie he is to a range of interpretations Mm. particularly with like arrangements of the score so he's happy for the score to be rearranged if it needs to be which is quite amazing quite amazing yeah so the show has been adapted for a range of settings there was a notable south african production set in district six yeah that sounded fascinating fascinating yeah um willie russell actually because i was listening to him on um every musical ever and he was 
was saying that he was actually like he wanted them to go a little further with sort of the African influence yeah. in the music. Like he really wanted to feel more. But he he said like he thinks people, because so many other musicals are like this, feel almost intimidated by the idea of changing it. Yeah. Like they feel like they shouldn't. Yeah. And it's fair because most musicals you're like this is the musical, you yep. do this. You don't get that creative license. Yeah. But he's all about that. I, also, I just love that he's not precious. Like he just says he doesn't go for the cookie cutter musical yep. thing. Yeah. Um, so spoiler, the music is quite of its time. Yeah. If you've never seen the show and you're just listening to the cast recording, you will be disappointed. Like it'll feel very dated. It does feel really dated and at times it just feels sort of twee. Yeah. Um, it's Some of the music is just downright hokey, mm. to be fair. One thing Willie Russell says is that the songs need to feel purposeful and should definitely advance story and I think they are really functional songs. Yes. Like yep. rather than being beautiful, they're functional. Yeah. It's really very much like this character had no other option right now but to sing yes. about what they're going through or yep. whatever is happening. And I love that. Yeah. Like it's just too many musicals I see where it's like, okay, now we're just we've Here's just got a, a random song. song. Yeah, yeah, like what the fuck. Um, what, interestingly, you'll love this, one of Willie Russell's favourite musicals is Merrily. Oh, that does make me happy. And he calls um, Sondheim Steve Sondheim. Yeah. Like, are they friends? Maybe. Anyone who knows him calls him Steve and that's just always my thing where I'm just like, Every time oh. I hear it, I'm like, Steve. Yeah. <laughs> um, you can watch a recording of the 1988 West End production on YouTube. Ooh. I'm not going to link to it, of course. Um, I recommend that you do watch it if you can find it yep. like not necessarily the original 1988 it's quite dated now obviously in terms of recording but there are heaps of productions you can watch yeah um and i think that's how you should access yeah. the show um rather than listening to a cast recording i think so yeah. i think you should do that before you listen to it yeah definitely there are quite a few cast recordings available though if you want to go that route so on spotify there is the original cast recording there's the 1988 london cast there's a 1995 london cast and a 2008 new cast recording yeah so heaps of options like just heaps yeah uh, i couldn't find the broadway cast Interesting. Yeah, who knows? I mean, sometimes if it's a similar cast, they don't bother re-recording it. Yeah, and apparently the Australian cast did record an oh. album. I can't find it anywhere. Ah, uh, it's a shame. Yeah, so if anyone can track that yeah, down, because I'd be love great. to listen to the combination of Russell Crowe and Peter Cousins. I think is good. Yeah, and Chrissy Amphlett is sing the shit out of it. Yeah, so Willie Russell talks about that. Had the fact that he first met her and was just like staggered by how beautiful she yeah. was, and was like, "Oh, she's not right for this." But apparently, she like travelled to the UK and went to like he did these like writing courses for yeah. children and he she like came to one oh. and he was just fully charmed by her that's amazing yeah so that's nice he was talking about how sad he he was when she passed away yes yeah um okay so some gateway songs this is actually really hard because like i said i don't think you should listen to it but it, if you have to start with marilyn monroe yep it's just fun and fanciful. It sets up the character of Mrs. Johnston really nicely. That's basically the opening, isn't it? Yeah. Pre- well, it's like after it's like, like the narrator does yes, his thing, yeah. then she comes out and, yeah, it's just like how she got where she is. Um, then you just have to listen to the hit of the show, in my opinion, the only truly good song of the yeah. show, which is Tell Me It's Not True. Yeah. I think you would have heard that song before. Yeah, like it's definitely. It was probably one of those like hits at the yes, time. Yes, it was like a pop single, right? Yeah, like it yeah. was charted. Yeah. But it's also just a really good song. Yep. And, the, I mean, like if you watch, say, say Barbara Dixon or um, Stephanie Lawrence do it, it's just like gutting. Yes. Gutting. 
Yeah. So, yeah, that's Black yeah. Brothers. Awesome. Yeah, it is awesome, actually. I'd sort of – I'd put it on my list thinking, like, yeah, I do really like Blood Brothers, but then this week as I was looking into it, I just thought, yeah – I would actually love the opportunity to play with this show. Yeah, I agree. It'd be great to do a production of it, wouldn't it? Knowing too how flexible um, Willie Russell is with interpretations. Yeah. I really like that. Yeah. And I, I like that it's a small cast and I like that, yeah. And he, like, he talks about how he doesn't really, he's not really fascinated by twins and he doesn't really care about the nature versus nurture yes, thing. Yeah. He just wanted to write a story about people. I know. It's like you sort of think, yeah, like surely this is some twin yeah, it's not. Twin obsession. Like, he wasn't trying to make any any sort of statement or follow a theme. He was just, just thought just it was a good story. Yeah, yeah. That's it. Which it so, is. It's a great just story. It's a great story. Yeah, yeah. And absolutely. I, I love that you can tell that he's been influenced by some really like highbrow um, practitioners like Brecht because he just employs some really clever techniques. Like the narrator is clever. Yes. Because I think without that, without the foreshadowing of what's going to happen, it would just appear like a melodrama. I also think I just remember like if you have a kick-ass singer as the narrator yeah that's quite a great thing too like the yes. narrator can really be quite a presence in the yeah. show well the narrator sings quite a few yeah. songs I just so. remember they sort of had him in like a big black trench coat yeah and he just looked really cool yeah <laughs> it's um yeah I would actually really love to explore that show yeah yeah awesome thanks excellent well thanks for listening everyone yeah thank you everyone um, this please, has been my favorite musical please tune in on Thursday for the mixtape Indeed. And please like, subscribe, rate, all the stuff. All that stuff. And we'll see you next time. Bye. Bye. Bye.